And now, the Rathband Tapes. Episode 13. I fought the law, and the law won. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome once again to the Rathband Tapes. My name is Tony Horn, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband in Lancashire, England. In South Australia, his twin, Darren. Over the last few episodes, we've been telling the entire story from Staffordshire to David's death. There isn't much left to explore. But what happened after leap year's day when David took his own life? Is that the end of the story? Well, no, it's not. There's still some way to go. We have an inquest to deal with, and then we have litigation from the family against Northumbria police. So let's deal with the inquest first of all. We start to get a little bit hazy on dates because the timeline of everything that happened during Rothbury and up to David's death is quite well documented. It's quite easy really after David's death to take your eye off the ball in terms of remembering what exactly happened when. But it looks like from memory that the inquest took place uh, January 2014. I did not attend that inquest. Darren, you were in Australia, correct? Yeah, I didn't attend. I wasn't asked to. I don't think they thought it was important that his twin brother uh, come and make an appearance. See, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, certainly as a person who's had some dealing with coroner's courts and inquests, they usually like to uh, speak to those who last spent some time with the person who's deceased. Uh, clearly me. I'm glad you say that because my opinion is that there was a desire that the inquest be very much a closed shop. So I'll tell you what happened from my point of view. And again, I can't give you the dates on this, but I remember thinking someone's going to ring me. And as Kirsty McCall says in the song in New England, I sat by the phone waiting for someone to pull me through. When at last it didn't ring, I knew it wasn't you. So that call never came. And I'm a firm believer, and I hope that the narration of David's story confirms this, that you must in life try to do the right thing. And you've got an option here. You can sit there and do nothing, or you can listen to the voice in your head that says, hang on a minute, you know quite a lot about this. You should be talking to somebody. So I rang the coroner. And, of course, they asked me who I was. Now, I don't say that in a craving an ego point of view, as in, you know, look, the reality is that in the northeast of England, research showed that most people had heard of me. 
Plus, obviously, that's through the radio show, my association with David. So the next thing that happens, and I'm in Cheshire at this point, a police officer from Northumbria Police called Peter Bent comes to see me. And I'm taken into a little room in Stockton Heath Police Station, which is just about two miles outside of Warrington. And it's all very pleasant. And I tell my story. Now, I think, Darren, you might have some insight into this, but when you are the narrator of that story, you are literally pouring your heart out and you are trying to give as much helpful information as possible. When the officer then hands you your statement to sign and you look at it and you think well that's a very bland version of what i told you <laughs> does that ring true yeah unfortunately um there's a couple of ways to look at it and i'll try and be succinct and point from a policeman's point of view there's a lot of stuff that you can give out in a verbal can of something that is not really required so they tend to ad lib now, there's a conflict there with evidence because it's supposed to be the witness's statement, not the police officer's. So there is certainly uh, an issue with ad-libbing and retracting and adding uh, things that haven't been said. Um, and the second thing, uh, what happens is they can be prejudiced to the outcome. So they put in what they feel is appropriate to get to the result that they think it should be. And I'm not saying that that is what happened in regards to a coroner's statement, but in regards to a witness statement, which is exactly the, it's the same uh, basis for a coroner's statement. That's, I've seen that happen. I can tell you for a fact, I've made statements shorter uh, on the basis of the first one. Well, there is probably a copy of my statement in my files somewhere. I would hope so. But my overriding memory is it was quite bland compared to the detail that I had given. So why did I feel the need to ring the coroner and therefore have a police officer make a six-hour round trip and spend two hours with me? Well, obviously, there's a sense in all of this story that hopefully comes through Darren's words and my words, that there's a danger about forgetting and there's a danger about the dead not having a voice to represent them. That's the broad picture. The more specific picture that I alluded to a couple of episodes ago is it was on my mind that I had spoken with David before he died and before means very recently but not the night before and I texted and spoke with Alison Brown his family liaison officer and I said David is going to kill himself from memory it was approximately 8 p.m. on a Friday evening when this exchange took place I learned, whilst giving my statement, 
that Alison Brown hadn't mentioned this in hers. You would think... I'm not over... I'm not grandiosing here, am I? I'm not giving myself more importance than I deserve. But you would think, wouldn't you, Darren, that if an officer had received a call from somebody as close to David as you know we were, who shared his life and his secrets for the last year of his life, you would think that would be mentioned, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, most certainly. It's evidential. I think one of the issues that I certainly saw with Alison Brown and uh, I think it was, Chris, it was Christopher Clark, the two family liaison officers that were assigned to David and Kath. They became, in my opinion, more friendly with Catherine than they were with anybody else. And I think that certainly had an in- impact on how they treated certainly me and maybe yourself, Tony. Perhaps in their defence they are the family liaison officer and that encompasses... Well, it encompasses you, but it encompasses Kath, and obviously you're in Australia, and Kath's in Blythe. But it's a unique set of circumstances. We refer frequently to David the policeman, David the victim, David the witness, and I suppose there are... In Northumbria Police, probably very few times when they've had to be family liaison officer to one of their own, a unique set of parameters. When it came to the inquest per se, I was told that my statement would be read out. I believe some parts of the book were also read out. This extraordinary where that book has taken us. I was not able to represent myself, but Alison Brown, I understand, was asked something along the lines of, or something that conveyed why she hadn't included me saying, David's going to kill himself. And my understanding, and I found it in a newspaper article as well, was that she replied that I was rambling and she thought I was drunk. Well, I can tell you that at 8 o'clock on a Friday evening, uh, I'm not normally drunk. I might well be a couple of hours later. I do quite often ramble, particularly if I'm in an anxious state. But either way... I'm not one to cry wolf, and I'd never, ever had called Alison Brown before to say what I said to her. The fact remains that I was correct. However, I delivered the information, and David killed himself. Yeah, and I think the important fact about that phone call, Tony, is irrespective of what she reportedly says your uh, behaviour was like, she admitted it. She didn't put it in. So then all of a sudden she changes her statement and puts that in. So that certainly, in my thought process, makes that more suspicious 
and underhand than it would have been in the first place if she had added that in a statement to say, I spoke to Tony, we had a conversation about this uh, and I found him to be possibly under the influence. Now, that would have been and made more, that would give that statement more integrity and it wouldn't have then been called into question. Yeah, and just <laughs> self-defence, you know, I was living with the kids at that point and my kids, especially the younger one, would be routinely in bed at 7 o'clock and perhaps I speak for some wine-drinking middle-class parents, but generally in the house you don't really have a drink before the kids go to bed. I can recall some of that evening and I know that I exchanged that information in good faith with the maximum amount of responsibility and in a position to do so. I believe you have to ask the question, cover up or covering your own backside? Possibly the latter. Would acting on that information have changed anything? I suspect not. The coroner is completely separate. He comes under the Queen. He's higher, one of the highest uh, judicial people in the country. He's responsible for only finding out three things in question. Who, when, how. That's it. And what you don't get is the ability to question, proportion, or lay any blame at anybody's feet. So, subject to that, those rules, an inquest becomes slightly unfavourable to families and certainly balanced towards anybody that's done something wrong. So, and the additional thing to that is the police are provided with any statements for the, before the coroner. So they certainly do read those statements. And do you know what that gives them? That does give them the ability to cross the T's, dot the I's, and cover their arms. Because I've actually seen it done, and I'm aware that it does get done. So that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Well, I am confident in the facts and I am confident that I was part of a stitch up yes I signed my statement but I found it bland yes I did tell the family liaison officer yes I understand that she changed her statement and no I wasn't allowed if that's the correct terminology or invited to attend the inquest the Inquest, of course, changes nothing. I mean, it does feel like a piece of paperwork and box ticking. I was asked to go on Good Morning Britain, I think, at this point, and I said the inquest changes nothing. If you now, years later, type in David Rathband inquest, um, again, this is... This is the danger of Google. A quick reminder of what David had said about 
himself, legacy, Googling David Rathband. I will forever, because I used to do searches on the internet for David Rathband, and one thing come up from years ago when I had a bit of a set to in a referees meeting where I uh, broke somebody's finger because he wouldn't leave and he was ejected and blah, blah, blah. It'll take you, it'll take a lot to get you off Google yeah. or whatever in the next hundred years. Yeah, but a couple of things used to pop up like referees reports or match reports. Mm. I think there was about nine. Um, but like now, there's hundreds. Mm. And it's like I've got that legacy on the internet where I will never ever be forgotten. I mean, how many people can say that? Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why you have to speak up. It's plain to see in the media right now as we record. The truth is getting drowned out. Daily Mail, 8th of January 2014. Raoul Mote was responsible for the suicide of PC David Rathband, says the coroner. As he finds the shooting that blinded him was the first in a series of events. Well, you might have something to say about that, Darren, because I think we've always been adamant that, however tragic this story is, we're not going to attribute David's death to, to Mote, are we? No, David would be absolutely devastated if that happened. I've got a, I've got a print on my wall. It says he wasn't good enough to keep me down. David would be the first person to say, well, Matt, uh, Matt uh, didn't kill him and was never going to kill him. And I've always said six people carried him to it in his funeral, one person sent him to it. And for the coroner to say that is absolutely farcical. Absolute farcical. That's how it was written up. Uh, we weren't there to hear the exact words, of course. Um, Evening Chronicle in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. PC David Rathband inquest. Estranged wife told she wouldn't see him again in last phone call. And then, I don't know if this is true or not. David Rathband inquest on the BBC website. PC's video threat to kill himself. A policeman shot and blinded by a gunman, Ralmoat, threatened to force his estranged wife to watch him hanging. Is that true, do you think? Um, uh, Tony, I, I don't know. Maybe it could be. Um, I know that, um, well, I would assume that he was trying to make contact with her. And in fact, if you recall a couple of podcasts ago, I mentioned that she was actually outside the home address whilst yeah. he was inside. Obviously, going along some distress where she then rang my sister and asked her to travel four hours to come and save him, if you recall. Now, she was obviously outside, so I think that was possibly when she had a phone call. That wasn't really addressed anywhere, was it, really? There's a couple of other lines here that frankly I think are, are laughable um, on a site called Police Oracle Northumbria Police has insisted it did everything it could for PC David Rathband after he was shot and blinded I think we've told the story accurately and that is simply untrue they might 
feel that they did internally. They might have felt that they did everything, but looking from our point of view and people listening to this, there's simply no way that's true. <laughs> yeah, and the tragic thing is that they, they being senior management in any police force in England or Wales would exactly feel the same way. Having done, if they did it mirror, mirror image, they would still think they've done the right thing by one of their officers. There is, there is no regard for the rank and file by senior management that I can suggest occurs in David is no I would expect Northumbria police to say we did everything we could and there comes a point that you, when you've got to move on and I would turn around to that and say why? Well you can't, David can't move on Yeah um, they've, they've got a responsibility you would think for the rest of his life somebody has um, I agree you know what family friends his wife me uh, people that met him along the way we all had a responsibility and you know what I'm quite happy to stand up or anybody else to say where I failed I can't see many people standing up behind me but I can see 100 people behind me the Northern Echo reported police did not believe David Rathban intended to carry out suicide threat inquest hears and there's a picture of Alison Brown arriving at um, at the inquest itself. Now, obviously given what I've said earlier, I think she is bound to say that. That is likely, she, she's in a corner there where there's not much else that she probably can say. She may have believed that, but I think the way that I've told events uh, places her with absolutely no option. Can I just uh, put something again to the listeners and yourself, Tony? We had a conversation about Penny Dane going to David's house in... I think three months before he ultimately took his own life, where she found him dishevelled and difficult to um, get him to respond to door knocking. Uh, and that was the occasion where he said he tried to take tablets and kill himself. If you recall, she contacted Northumbria police and told them that she wouldn't leave that address until somebody came because uh, she was concerned. They turned up. So there, that is contradictory to Alison Brown's statement. They did believe or know that David had tried to commit suicide. They were advised. They turned up at the address. And what's funny, Tony, is oh, that's not in the inquest either. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? We talk about Google. And I think it's helped me out here because I've actually typed in David Rathban inquest, Tony Horn, drunk. <laughs> and there's an article on the Newcastle Evening Chronicle website, a paper who showed me uh, zero respect and loyalty. I wrote a column for them for seven years, 
for free. Anyway, this is, I'm scrolling down halfway. So DC Brown, so that's Alison Brown, told the inquest that while she was worried about David, she did not believe there was any risk of him taking his life. She said, my concern was raised, but I really didn't think David would have done it. But DC Brown contacted David's close friend, the former Metro Radio DJ, Tony Horn. That's not true. I contacted her. You see? Little bit of subtlety there. Yeah. The reversal of the position positions Alison Brown as somebody doing her job and checking all bases by contacting me. I contacted Alison Brown. The article reads, in a text conversation, the broadcaster said he was worried about David and thought his threats of suicide were real. DC Brown read out a text from Mr. Horn. It said, this is not going to end well. If he kills himself, the media will slaughter him. I'm not sure why I thought that, but perhaps it was something to do with the meltdown on Twitter that we had spoken of in a previous episode i the text continues the force has to look after him or they will have blood on their hands okay so that's my text the article says however when dc brown spoke to mr horn later he was rambling and thought he was drunk she told the inquest the word later is the key so there's a gap between the text which has no typos in it is perfectly calm and sensible but smelling the danger the situation the text speaks for itself so one has been erased and repositioned uh in the countdown to david's death there and i say that because you know, we're still here, but it's really important that the narrative is, is balanced. And as I've told it, is what happened. I ask again, why would an officer not include key details like that in a statement and rewrite a statement? Uh, it's, it's self-serving, Tony. It's self-serving to, to the degree that they have the ability to foresee uh, any issues with any statements that are going to the coroner's office. So quite clearly, she's not going to put herself in a position where she accepts what you've said may be possible because then she's failed to act on uh, a, a conversation about somebody killing killing themselves. Now, the other, if you look at that, that that's happened all the way through this. Every, nobody's interested in what's happened to David uh, it, until they're made to. Uh, nobody was interested about Chris Brown. Uh, in fact, that didn't happen full stop because he got murdered before anybody could be responsible. The the prison service, they I think they were the only people that were actually interested in anything. But whenever they spoke to people, they didn't, they didn't care. Now, also what you've got to look at is the welfare inspector that obviously... Had a con somebody had a concern somewhere, Tony, because David was met off the plane from the airport uh, in regards to his, uh, and I invert my fingers and say, 
meltdown. He was clearly having a, a, a meltdown. He, he was clearly suicidal and distraught. And it was clearly deemed uh, important that a welfare officer meet him at the airport. That welfare officer met him and didn't do anything. An inquest would have taken place, obviously, if this had nothing to do with the police. But it feels to me like the only benefit of this inquest was the tidying up of Northumbria's position. I can't actually remember what the outcome of the inquest was and it doesn't really matter does it because no it's it's window dressing david's well, dead the, the the thing is as i touched on tony inquests for families are really difficult and, and let me just remind you i've done two of them um i've done one for my niece naomi who again was found deceased at the age just before she was 18 I, at that stage, had to step up and I, I helped my sister and our family go through the process of the inquest. I asked the questions. I queried the investigation. I asked for the coroner to reopen, which he, and the coroner of Blackpool uh, did uh, because there was issues in regards to how that was investigated by the police. Now, with this inquest, I, I never even got asked to attend. I asked if I could go. I was told I wasn't needed. I asked if I should provide a statement. I was told that wasn't necessary. Wasn't necessary. I've just spent two months with my brother who gave me his last will and testament. I saw him told by his wife that their marriage was over. She wanted X amount. I think I did have an important issue. Uh, issue raised. And the other thing is, I could have given evidence in regards to his mental state before and as he left. Yeah, so with neither of us there, we rely on our memories and our attempts to create a level playing field. But also, let's just have a look at this Daily Mail article that I mentioned a few moments ago from Emma Thomas, 8th of January 2014. This is the article that says... The coroner, Eric Armstrong, urged none of those involved to blame themselves. And the headline, and sometimes the headlines are written by a sub-editor who didn't write the article and sometimes they don't represent the article. But the headline reads, Raoul Moat was responsible for the suicide of PC David Rathband, says the coroner. Now, we have talked long ago about the mess up in the control room that night i found a clip of david discussing what he had said to victoria derbyshire on five live on the bbc and <laughs> it's all very well for the coroner to urge that nobody blame themselves but let's give a voice to a dead man here. Victoria Derbyshire asked me a question about the police and I said, it's about accountability. Yeah. I said, it's, no, it's never ever and never will be about the money. 
I said, but I know that there are two individuals that made mistakes and they should be held to account. The first time I've ever mentioned that I know that there are two individuals and I just so wanted them to hear that, to, for them to know that I hold them perfectly responsible for what happened. They cut loads of it out and I think it's um, legal stuff, that's why. So when he says they cut loads of it out, that refers to a pre-recorded interview and an edit there out of fear. But, you know, I don't have to edit anything here. That's a raw conversation. You heard it. The coroner urged nobody to blame themselves. Darren and myself asked to give statements and are not invited to attend. A Northumbria police officer changes a statement and David blames the two individuals either in or overseeing the control room on the night so amongst all of that mess that very last clip there is the one that I think has to be respected and is absent from the write-up of the inquest from the inquest we move to litigation and you know here's an interesting thing when we <laughs> published the book tango 190 it was read by the lawyers of of biteback publishing and also read by peter sutherland's team so that was david solicitors and we are talking about 2011. And I can clearly recall some of the edits that were made in the book from a sort of structure and narrative and creative point of view from the publisher and some of the edits that were asked for by the legal team. I don't think I'll ever find myself in a scenario like this again. David would quite often use industrial language, you know. Uh, my feeling is that's not uncommon amongst police officers. We reined in some of the industrial language in the book. There's a story in there in which he does refer to an officer uh, by the C word, and I think we watered that down. I said it was important to leave a little bit of that in because that represented, you know, a true picture. But what they didn't want, and this is the point, they didn't want to position David as a foul-mouthed cop ahead of litigation that might well be some years down the line. So even in 2011, we know that's happening and we are dreadful word future proofing i suppose we've talked a lot uh, about accountability we've just heard it in that last clip darren when the inquest concluded debbie your sister stood on the steps outside the inquest and said that they would continue with litigation I think for the benefit of David's 
children. Um, it's still a massive burden and undertaking. So even when we think the story is finished at the inquest, there's still a long way to go. Just explain from your family's side, rather than Kath's, that motivation for taking Northumbria police to court. Oh, well, I think it just resonates what David says, accountability. Um, David obviously was uh, advised and clearly of the opinion that he was let down. Um, he was certainly conscious uh, that the senior officer in the control room had made a, uh, and I could use industrial language, but I'll stop, uh, a, a mistake. Um, so it, from our point of view, the litigation was just a natural progression and something that we had to do for David um, and, and his children. On the back of that, you for me then the accountability came uh, after that. It was about uh, looking after David's children, then accountability. And I think that what your viewers need to be aware of, Tony, David actually wasn't bothered about suing the police. He said that from when he was lying in the hospital bed, he wasn't going to sue them. And the only thing that changed that was Sue Sims saying to David that he should sue the police force. Actually, there's a little bit more to, the, to this. So Sue Sim later denied that she said that. We are pretty confident that conversation took place and was overheard. David, you must sue me. When the book came out, Two days before, Northumbria Police rang up the publisher and said, could we just have a, you know, first eyes on the on the book so there are no surprises? Uh, the publisher said, no, you have to buy it like everyone else. Oh, by the way, could you send us uh, the mugshots of Ness and Awan for the photo section? They went, yeah, no problem. But it's not just, it's not just that you must sue me quote, which is, you know, if you think, and Darren, you know this, when people make up witness statements the the little detail often lets people down you know it was a blue car oh no it was a green car and the big lies they can keep keep track of it's quite hard to uh, invent a dialogue and stick to it so this phrase david you must sue me i've heard many times and it was either said or it wasn't, and I believe it was said. But there's another point, and that is, and I'll let people Google, Costello versus Northumbria Police. So when David was in hospital, he had a visit from, I believe, either someone in the Costello family or representing the Costello family. Now, this is an historic case. Costello versus Northumbria Police. You can find it, I think, on Google or certainly on some law sites. And I think the litigation there was about a duty of, of care. So there was a precedent 
as well. So it's those two things. It's Sue and it's the Costello case in the past. The Costello case, Tony, just to give you a little bit of clarity on it, was in regards to a female police officer who was in the custody area that was asked or told, directed by the custody sergeant, to go and check on a prisoner. She was viciously beaten, unconscious, smashed all over the custody area, and she sued Northumbria Police on the basis that they breached the duty of care uh, by putting her in position uh, and being assaulted. She won that case. That was certainly considered both legally, morally, and any other way you want to look at it prior to David going to litigation. Uh, and obviously, lawyers, barristers, Tony, as you know, as well as I do and as the listeners do, they don't take things on unless they think, one, they're going to win, or two, which is usually linked to the first one, but probably more important, that they are going to get paid. Yeah, and it's one of the toughest moments in your life when you have to engage a lawyer. It's expensive, it's stressful. We've seen David's angst during the trial that he feared a low baller even though the evidence was conclusive you can never be 100 percent sure of how it's going to go unfortunately in the last 20 odd years in my life i've had lawyers on speed dial for various reasons and i still do believe one thing that i was always told which is that a judge will tell lawyers this and a lawyer should always be trying to keep something out of court it's the extreme moment i think when you have to litigate was there any alternative in this case i don't see that there was was there do you know what i suppose the alternative was if they looked after david as people would probably think he should have been looked after there would be no reason for him to sue them. Um, I can tell you financially, David, um, although he made a deal with the son that I did and his book, he was no better off. Um, he was uh, subject to statutory disability payments against what Sue Sims said. Um, but they, and they don't because they have a policy. So that would have certainly been alternative. And um, I also believe as well, Tony, that David had another conversation with Sue Sims about the fact that the insurance for Northumbria Police and her liability would not cover what David could possibly be awarded because Sue Sims, by all accounts, and I'm sure she'd deny this, wanted to settle with David prior to going to court. Well, in the interests of... You being, you know, described as scaremongering or stir it up. I also heard that. Um, and my gut feeling, and we will come to this in our very final episode, when we'll talk a little bit about what happened to some of the characters involved in this. My gut feeling is that Sue Sim was a decent person and did want to do the right thing by David but the bigger problem the broader landscape is that she's part of a political 
game. And her own appointment, we'll discuss next time, was that political that it was referred to the Home Secretary. We'll explain in the final episode. So my feeling, Darren, is that Sue did want to do the right thing. She did say that. And the decision probably was on somebody else's desk. Yeah, there's a, there's also an element what you've got to remember is uh, liability. Sue Sims uh, certainly doesn't have to write a cheque out of her weekly, monthly salary. It would come from the police budget. And, uh, sorry, the police budget. And it would also then come down to the insurance. The issue that I'm aware of, that her police force budget for liability only goes to a certain amount and the conversation or discussion was had with the, the police insurers and they said we are not settling we can't afford to fold let them have it win or whatever you call it we have to go to trial so to the opposing voice in all this who might say hey look you joined the police force you've got to take the rough with this move these things happen it's part of the job what do you say to that oh let's uh, let's put that on its head tony mps you become member of parliament i'm sure you're open to everything that we can think of abuse criticism being named in a house under parliamentary um um license Possibly being murdered by one of your consistents. They didn't well, expect that's happened that. twice. Exactly right. Uh, the police officer that was murdered outside of the Houses of Parliament. Is that normal? Do we expect that? Do they expect that? Nobody deserves that. And that argument and doesn't stand any weight. So the, the gist of the case, essentially, against Northumbria Police is... A duty of care and revolves around, let's spell it out, the cock up in the control room that night. Two questions. What was Northumbria Police's defence, hence why the litigation was lost? And I'm pretty sure Sue Sim was asked about that you must sue me comment. Are you aware how that panned out? Yeah, I think she was asked and she denied it. And quite clearly, um, she's going to have to. Because she... Uh, is it, aren't you always told if you have an accident on the side of the road, never get out of the car and say, I'm ever so sorry. Because it's you, you are admitting liability. She's quite clearly uh, indicated that she's admitted liability by saying, you need to sue me. Now, the other thing as well, Tony, is, in regards to that, is that having made the decision, of, she, she was the commander, she's, she's actually asked for a review of what happened during this uh, phone call and who had it and who listened to it, who had numerous times, to, who wanted it emailing, who held a piece of plastic card up in a control room in the 21st century. Uh, all those, all that, all that article stuff was discussed. 
she instigated a performance review about that uh, decision and what happened. She clearly stated she would have given a order over the radio. She is the chief constable of that police force. She's culpably liable for her officer's safety. She clearly says she would have given that advice. And in future, senior officers must, emphasise must, consider doing that in any circumstances similar. What does that tell you? Well, it's quite clear. So why did, let's rephrase it, rather than why did you lose the litigation, why did Northumbria Police get off the hook? Well, I think if you read the judgment, and I, I, I encourage people to read the judgment, because even that has an element of the big top and the facade that the whole investigation has. The, the judge goes from, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, we shall not, should not assume hindsight is a terrible thing. However, I am saying that David would have clearly not said, uh, uh, Sue Sims would clearly not say that to David. So he, he can make assumptions without fact. He can assume things to go in a direction that he wants to have this uh, litigation closed. And I think if you read it, there's three things you have to find for to find liability. David found two of them. It failed on the basis that Superintendent Farrell considered giving the order over the radio. However, she wanted to, and this is, I think this is the basis. She wanted to listen to the phone and that didn't give a chance to, to give that order out. I think that was my understanding of that judgment. That's why they got off the hook. Superintendent Farrell made that call. She failed to look after her officers. In reflection, her chief constable would have done the same. She wouldn't have had to listen to a email phone call from another office. However, she gets promoted on the basis that one of her officers shot left dying at the side of the road i wonder and a judge's decision is is an opinion and what we have here is some evidence and one person's opinion on it i wonder if the judge overseeing costello versus northumbria police would have come to a different decision and all of this revolves around the failure to pass a warning on on the night but i actually think you can retrace your steps and i remember clearly david telling me about that afternoon he went in to work we discussed this right at the start of this series but it had been Mia's party. David changed shifts. He'd played golf in the morning. And it was his neighbour, as David was leaving the house, that said something like, what about that shooting last night in Burtley? Referring to Chris Brown. Not just shooting, assassination and dead. The casual 
this with which David described that conversation and, you know, Mia's birthday and the golf and packing up his lunchbox under his arm and trotting off into work. And then you may recall David looked up Moat on the computer because they had previous. I cannot get my head around the fact that there's no noise in this narration. Where are all the sirens wailing? Where's the brief saying, get into work earlier, there's a gunman on, on the loose? Who met him when he arrived? It feels like Sleepy Town, and there has been a murder the night before. What? The control room is hugely significant in the duty of care argument but i think so is that time between chris brown's assassination and david's slaying do you agree if you look at and you've got to look at it as a complete um picture or a jigsaw and if you have all the pieces you can you can see what's in front of you they did they didn't have the pieces. They could have had. They could have put that picture, I think, together a lot quicker. But they were probably asking somebody else if it fitted into the hole. And that's where you get that chaos. Shall I make the decision or I better not? Let me have another listen to it. They, they, t Tony, and I've said this to you before. They knew who, he, who this man was. They knew what he was capable of. There, was, there should have never been any question that other people were at risk. So when he rings up and says, I'm, I'm coming after you, clearly he's, already, he's, he's stating his intent to, to go after police. As a clearly duty of care, even, even if that doesn't happen, morally, somebody, Superintendent Farrell, anybody, the duty inspector, should have said something on the radio. Isn't well, that's common sense? Two things. Let's remember that David went out alone that night. You know, we're back to Sleepy Town. Would where is the upping of the game after Chris Brown's shooting? Secondly, on this business, and I refer to language that David used, we've mentioned before. He talks about them packaging up the call and sending it to, I think, Eatle Lane for someone superior to listen to. How often in a police career do you get called to false alarms? They know, as Darren says, who Moat is. They know what happened the night before. Don't you just press go immediately when the guy spells it out to you what he's going to do and you can do all that listening back afterwards if it turned out to be a false alarm can't you you can have a little investigation and go well you know the guys weren't out but it turned out this this was a hoax call well okay at least we did the right thing you know we we dealt it with it seriously in the moment but it there's none of that is there it's just none no. of that no and the clues were there and and quite, quite well, quite concerningly, that wherever that call was taken, 
they've got inspectors. They've got a duty inspector in that room that is in control and quite clearly would have probably had hearing of that phone call. Then somebody else, I, I need to listen to it, send it in an email. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous, Tony. And on the basis of that, and what I want to go back to as well, the judge clearly says that David, in regards to any risk, there would be no officer in Northumbria police that wouldn't have been aware of what had gone on the night before. And he made that the judge in his litigation made that assumption. David's evidence that he then decides to decline to refer to clearly states that the traffic inspector had no idea who'd been shot, murdered, or anything the night before. Yeah, until he got to work, because David had been involved in his family liaison work for traffic yeah, accidents the, 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 the traffic inspector, Tony, did not say anything to David. He didn't know. One thing I've never heard explained, and frankly, I'm only really thinking about it now. So we've got David not knowing, and I refer to Sleepy Town. We've got a gunman on the loose. What was the police activity from the moment Chris Brown is shot to the moment David is shot. You would think that the city would have been full of wailing sirens. You would have been pulling CCTV, wouldn't you? AMPR? Yeah. Oh, they'd, I, they'd certainly be on high alert. The, the ARVs, the armed response vehicles, would have all had briefings. The people that know you would have thought would have had briefings. The in any sort of 21st century police force, you think intel from the correction officers, home office, prison service would have been collated and put in a folder, voiced over that he's told them that he's going to buy a gun when he gets out of prison and he's going to go and shoot his partner and that he likes to go camping in Rothbury and that's where he's going to go after. That's all in a report, Tony. That Saturday, there is nothing high alert about that Saturday, and it's a long time ago since we discussed it. How did the police know he was in Rothbury? Oh, an old deer rang it in. Yeah, that, okay. that was certainly an idea why they knew he was there. But uh, it, that he'd already told, he'd already told people where he, he knew Rothbury, and he'd already told them that he was going to go camping in Rothbury. The question you're asking is, why is it so sleepy down? I'll tell you what it is. It's because they weren't running anything. The coward Moat was running his own show. Did you feel that you were likely to, and there are no winners, win the litigation? Do you know, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't really care. It wasn't going to benefit David. It would have been nice. to, And even from my perspective, Tony, it would have been nice for somebody to say, yeah, we messed up, sorry. All I got was, uh, well, you got a bit longer with your brother, didn't you? That's a bonus. And now we're not giving you 500 quid. And can you not bury him this weekend? So it was just, it, it, had, no, it had no consequence to me. It would have been nice 
but having on the back of that Tony I've I've read the judgment and some of the things that are in there are somewhat concerning that the one of the things is the David's legal team brought an expert who had no recent policing knowledge of firearms tactics so he was deemed for want of a better word absolutely useless for a barrister to have that in front of him and for that not to be picked up really early on that we we need a a, a proper up-to-date home office approved expert in firearms techniques etc etc uh, is somewhat disappointed the narration of this case as we know is heavily weighted towards moat headline after headline tv show after tv show i don't think that many people actually remember there was any litigation the money as you say an irrelevance it leaves a little nasty stain though that if someone did start looking at the litigation and I'm not saying read everything. All they're going to find probably on the internet is the the outcome of it. And not succeeding in the litigation leaves that whiff that maybe Northumbria police were blameless. And we have pointed out on so many occasions where, let's say, things could have been done differently... That must be frustrating that the final word on this implies that. Yeah, and that's that's what you call justice, isn't it? And as victims, uh, there ain't no justice. Families of people that get murdered, killed, uh, there is no there's no positive outcome for anybody, Tony. And the sad thing is that. It will happen again. It happened again very shortly after where the two girls in Manchester were shot and blown up with a hand grenade. Now, their families uh, and the circumstances are somewhat different. Although he's a wanted criminal, known to be violent, known to have murdered somebody before, but they went to a, a report of a burglary. Let's put that, that family or another family in the similar circumstances their their fa their family members have got no right to know that there's any risk because it doesn't fit in with the need for policing. So their managers don't have to tell them that they're at risk. Darren's referring to the murders of Nicola Hughes and Fiona Bone, September 2012, killed by Dale Cregan in a gun and grenade ambush. With the litigation against Northumbria Police, is there any right of appeal, or is that the end of the line? Uh, there was, uh, and the Federation, the Police Federation, where I actually made comment that they, it would be beneficial for them to consider appealing. I, I certainly couldn't afford to pay for an appeal. The, the litigation had a clause that it would be covered financially, um, after that, it wouldn't have been covered. If obviously unsuccessful, it would have been a private appeal. They they didn't do anything. What should have happened, Tony, in my my 
opinion was that should have been sent for an appeal, heard between three judges who then make a decision. And on the basis that that is, you get people, you get one judge saying he consent, disagrees, and then you, you, you can go up even higher than that. It was just fobbed off. Yeah, no, yeah. Wow. What what order? What warning could they give over the radio? Uh, well, even the non-expert for the defence couldn't give a audible one in court when he was asked to do so. We'll find against David and uh, put that in the file and put it with everything else. Get rid of it. And uh, you know what? That's exactly what happened. Fed Federation not interested. But I can tell you one thing, it'll happen again, and the family will read David's judgment and say somebody should have done something at the time. And the the evidence is there, hence the references to Costello, that history repeats itself. Well, an unsatisfactory end, and we've nearly reached the end of the line. Next time on the Rathband tapes. If you'd seen her the way she is at my house, I mean, for a chief constable to sit in, sit in my house and cry. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production. <laughs>